Hi, thank you very much for joining in this week's Bible study. This week, we are going to go through Acts chapter 6. Last week, we went through Acts chapter 5, and we saw um, two different elements that we looked at, but the one that I want to um, go over just really quick was one of the issues that popped up in the early church was an issue of um, dishonesty and hypocrisy. And as we saw last week, the Holy Spirit dealt with that very harshly and very quickly. Well, this week we are going to see another issue pop up in the early church. The, the church is growing rapidly, and with that you just simply have logistical issues that are going to come up with uh, more and more and more and more people um, joining the way. Uh, the other issue that is going to come up that we're going to talk about is the fact that you have a mixing of different uh, people groups. So you have uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews, and then you have Hellenistic Jews or Greek-speaking Jews. Hellenistic simply means from uh, a Greek, uh, that they speak Greek. Um, so you have two different groups that we're going to see, and some... Um, division amongst those two groups within the believers. So we're going to look at that as well. Our goal, my goal, anytime that I do one of these Bible studies with you guys, anytime you study the Bible, the first thing that we need to look at is first the historical cultural context to understand what the original author, which in this situation is Luke, what were his intentional, what was the intentional meaning behind his words for that people of that day. That is the first thing we must always do, and the best way to understand that is to look at the historical cultural context, to try as best as we're able 2,000 years later to understand the culture, uh, what was happening at the time, uh, historically, politically, all these different things go into trying to understand the context of that day. Once we know that information, then we can step back and we can say, okay, now what can we learn from that today? A lot of people will simply read the Bible and they'll try to immediately associate it with what we need to take away from that right here, right now. And the problem with that is, is that some things were intended specifically for that situation at that time. And the lesson that you'll learn, it might be a bigger picture, which is what we're going to specifically talk about today. So before we open this up, why don't you bow your heads? Uh, unless you're driving, of course, and you can obviously still pray with your eyes open. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me. Be here with me now as I'm, I'm giving this teaching. And Lord, be with the listener and the viewer as they are watching this or listening to this. Open up their minds and their hearts. Educate us in your word. E explain this to us, Lord. Teach us uh, the words that Luke is, is giving to us, the lessons that he's teaching us about your early church. We love you, Lord, and we, we give you this time. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so let's open up to Acts chapter 6. The choosing of the seven. Okay, so Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, we've gotten one verse in and I'm stopping right there. I want to explain this. This is the problem. For you note takers, the problem. 
Okay, so there's a couple different things that are that are mentioned here. Let's let's break it down just a little bit. First of all, we know that uh, the number of disciples was increasing. Disciple simply means one sent out. Th- these are members of the early church. Um, d- when we think of disciples today, we think of the 12, and we think of um, big, big leaders in churches or evangelists that go out. But disciple simply means follower of, of Christ and one sent out which we are all sent out. The Great Commission, we are all sent out. We are all, if you are a believer in Christ, then you are a disciple. So this is simply saying that the church is growing. The church is growing. The Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic Jews, and we'll see this description a little bit more, but but these are simply Jews that believe in the Messiah, so they're Messianic Jews. That term simply means that they are Jews that believe Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfillment of the Messiah, which at this point, everybody pretty much that's part of the church at this point is a Messianic Jew. They were Jewish, uh, but then they converted to Christianity and accepted Jesus as their Messiah. Okay, so, but the Hellenistic part simply means that their mother tongue, their mother language was Greek, and they likely grew up in a Greek province, okay? Uh, The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews simply mean a a Hebrew-speaking Jew. Likely these are locals to Jerusalem or around the area. So you do have an issue of locals versus foreigners at this point that, that are two divisions of the early church. Well, what's happening is is that uh, the Hellenistic Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews because they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food for the widows. Okay, so just to explain this just a little bit. In Jewish culture, uh, you don't need to worry as a... uh, taking care of widows and taking care of the elderly is all built into the Jewish system. They're taken care of by their family and and it's built into the culture so that you do not have uh, widows or um, elderly people that don't have any sustenance because they, they can't work. And so therefore, how are they going to be taken care of? Well, their family was responsible for doing that. The problem that you have is that these people in particular that we're talking about that are the, the disciples well, they've left Judaism, and now they're part of the way, the new church, Christianity. So a lot of them, their families disowned them. Their families wanted nothing to do with them because they were culturally Jewish, and they saw this new way as an upstart and, and an insult to them in some situations. So you had a division of family. So as a result, the Hebraic Jews as well as the, the uh, um, Hellenistic Jews that are widows or the elderly, their family has disowned them, so th- how are they going to get food? So we learned this in the previous chapters that they were uh, bringing everything together and taking care of each other's needs. This was part of the early church. They were taking care of each other, which was awesome. The problem was is that as the food was coming in, for some reason, the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, were getting... Um, better service. They were getting the food first, whereas the Greek-speaking Jews were not getting the food. And this was a huge issue that was arising. So that is the problem. Now, we don't know if there was prejudice going on 
but I'm guessing there was. I mean, anytime you have foreigner, foreigners um, that are coming in and both are needing sustenance, the locals expect to be taken care of first, even among Christians. Even among this group of early believers, you still have division. So this very well could have led to two divisions of the church. And you would then have a Greek-speaking church and you would have a Hebrew-speaking church. And the Hebrews would say, no, we must always speak in Hebrew. And the Greeks would say, well, we need to always speak in Greek to hold on to our culture. And you could very well have had a split and the first two denominations split. I mean, we're, we're only, uh, I think, eight years or less from Jesus walking, and already um, you're, you're seeing a potential division amongst the church. So that is, for you note-takers, the problem. Okay, so now let's see what the solution is. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together. So this is the, the full church is gathered together now, and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So what they're saying that, this is the 12 disciples are saying, look, we have a greater responsibility to do other elements other than taking care of food. From a logistical standpoint, the 12 can't do everything. That's what they're saying, but they need to have priorities. Brothers and sisters, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is the very first that we ever see of official positions within the church. And I love the fact that the very first responsibilities, the very first positions of authority within the church are for service. It's not for lifting up for teaching, uh, but it's specifically the first responsibility that is given to these seven is for service. The word minister literally means servant. This is where we actually get deacon from as well, is that they didn't officially call them deacons, but it's from this that we get today the idea of a deacon. Uh, the elders, the deacons, this is simply um, people who are stepping up in a position of uh, to simply help out in the logistics of the church being run. Why are they doing this? Well, the 12 cannot do everything, and they say specifically here, this is a splitting of responsibility. We will give our attention to prayer. I love the fact that that is the first thing, and the second thing is the ministry of the word. That's teaching. Prayer was first, and then teaching is second. What do we learn from this right now? Okay, so I, I talked about this before, is, is that if you, if you first look and say, okay, uh, what do we need to take away from this? Well, we need to do the same thing. We need to do the exact same thing. We need to have seven people that are responsible for the giving out of food to the Hellenistic Jews and to the Hebraic Jews. No. Um, I think that if you try to look at this and take it uh, for, uh, from a church leadership perspective and, and literally take every note from this, I think, you'll, I think you'll miss the point and the context. The point here, point number one for you note takers in the solution is first of all, they acknowledged the problem existed. They didn't immediately say to the people who are complaining, well, you just need to pray about that. 
They didn't say that, uh, well, you really shouldn't complain about the church. We're doing the best we can and nobody likes a complainer. No, what they did is they literally said, okay, we got a problem, we got an issue. Okay? The widows that are Greek-speaking widows, for some reason, are not receiving the food uh, in equal distribution as the Hebrews are, uh, as the Hebrew-speaking Jews are. So we've got to solve this. That's thing number one. Thing number two, so they gave it respect. They, they respected that it was a problem. Number two, they addressed it immediately. Number three, they gathered the full church together and got their input. If you'll notice... They gave the charge to the people to elect for themselves seven people to represent them to solve this issue. Well, one of the things that's really cool as we're going to see as the next verse, verse five, notice the names that, that, that are, are read off here. Okay, so verse five. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Notice anything about those names? I didn't notice this when I first read it, but they're all Greek. They're all Greek names. And there's two sides of that. Are all of these, uh, are these seven all Hellenistic? Did they all speak Greek? It's probable. One note that I did read, which is interesting, is, is at this time, for the cultural context, most people actually had three different names, which when I read that, I was like, wow, that's totally not the way we do things today. But at that time, they did. They would have a Greek name, a Hebrew name. What was the third one? I don't remember. Maybe a Roman name? I don't remember what the third one was. I should have written it down, but I didn't. But I just remember that, that most people had three names. So does it mean that these seven specifically were all Greeks, born Greeks, we know they all had Greek names and they likely all spoke Greek. The problem was one representing the Greek-speaking people. And so the seven people that were chosen, they're Greek names. Take it, take it from that what you like. They, the church, presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Okay, so uh, in going back to the lessons that we learned from this, lesson number one is, is that they acknowledged the problem and and treated it with respect. Number two, they addressed it immediately. Number three, they brought the whole church together. Uh, and number four, they, allowed, they, they got the input from the full church and what the issue was, and they delegated, which is awesome. Now we see another element that uh, is a common practice uh, in the church, which is the laying on of hands. Um, they prayed and they laid their hands on them, which is something that we still do to this day. Um, I find it most commonly done, the laying on of hands when you're praying for somebody, is one of two things. One, when you are um, sending someone out, you're commissioning them, you're giving them uh, a blessing or you're giving them a charge. It is a sending on, sending out, etc., or a, um, uh, an empowering of a position, which is the exact example that we see here. Another example that I've seen that, that I really in, enjoy doing this is when a situation is dire and you're praying for an individual who is really genuinely hurting, that they are going through um, the challenge of being in a valley. They're literally going through the valley and they need people to go along through that valley with them. And that's the joy of being a Christian is to have your brothers and sisters to be able to join you in that valley. And I think in those situations, um, 
if the person and if it's appropriate, um, if you're in your small group or your Bible study, um, is to come around that person and, and, and literally have everybody put their hands on them and then have the whole group pray for that person. And if you've ever experienced that, I have, um, being that person that's being prayed for in that way, it is amazing. Uh, I always cry uh, when people do that for me. Whenever I got something that's going on, it's so emotional to have all of this um, love and this energy, uh, but also to have the Holy Spirit just feel that power of all these people that are literally praying over that person. So that's neat. It's, it's great that we see that. This is a first example, first instance of them doing that. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a not large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so Luke here is kind of wrapping up, um, summing up the last few chapters. Um, and I love the fact that Luke does this every once in a while. He pauses and just gives a little, a little pit stop, a little summary, just a little uh, uh, accent. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now that intrigued me. I was like, what does that mean, a large number of priests? Well, that's Jewish priests. So, and I was just curious, okay, they're in Jerusalem. How many Jewish priests are there? So these are rabbis. These are, I mean, Jerusalem, you have the temple. This is the epicenter of Judaism is the temple. Now you obviously, we've talked about the Sanhedrin uh, and you, we've talked about um, the Pharisees and we've talked about the Sadducees. And, and those are the, the top echelon of the leadership. But you have the temple courts, which we've seen visual of the temple. It was huge. It was massive. So how many people were there that were actually um, rabbis, priests, teachers, etc., cetera, uh, of the Jewish faith? So I looked it up. And I'm going to read this. This is from um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, abridged edition. New Testament, so it has, uh, it's a commentary on the whole New Testament. Um, it's a great reference to have in addition to a Bible. Uh, and I'm just literally reading the reference that they have here um, for Acts chapter 6, verse 7. There were perhaps as many as 8,000 ordinary priests and 10,000 Levites divided into 24 weekly courses serving at the Jerusalem temple during the period of a year, whose social position was distinctly inferior to that of the high priestly families and whose piety, in many cases, uh, could well have inclined them to an acceptance of the Christian message. So the idea being is, is that you have 8,000 ordinary priests and 10,000 Levites so now the Levites were the, um, the Levitical priesthood system. They had specific roles within Judaism of their responsibility. Um, so that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And what this is saying is, is that these are ordinary people that were doing not as high-level position type stuff. So when it says that, that their piety, simply meaning that very likely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin were so proud and so arrogant of their position. We've talked about this before, but they were the upper echelon of society. They had these very, very high level positions of authority and respect. And as a result, it would have been very difficult for them to 
step away from that, to lose the full pomp and circumstance of their robes and their position of respect and authority, and suddenly change and go to this new system of Christianity, um, which said that everyone was equal, and that if you want to be the top, you have to act like you're at the bottom and serve everybody, and only then will you be at the top level. It was a complete flip. So what this is saying is, is that at the time, when we look at this, those people, those numbers that we looked at, they looked at the truth. They looked at the sermons and the messages that these apostles and disciples were giving because it was all specifically geared to the Jews, remember, at this point. They're saying, this whole Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, the, the, the prophets, they all speak of a coming Messiah. Guess what? Jesus is him. That's basically the gist of the message that these disciples were giving and the apostles were giving in Solomon's colonnade all throughout Jerusalem. And this verse in particular, large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith simply means they accepted Christ as their savior. That's cool. That is really cool. That means specifically that, that you are seeing lots of people who simply acknowledge the truth and they see the truth of the Old Testament. They know it so well. They're priests in that position. They're looking for Messiah. They realize and acknowledge that, wow, Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, now we are changing and we are uh, going into part two of this message where we're going to look and meet Stephen. Now, Stephen was one of the seven that was just introduced to us um, back in verse 5. He was the first one. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, um, for this one role. But we're now going to learn a lot more about him, uh, both this week and next week. So continuing on verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Uh, some of your translations might have said the libertarians, synagogue of the libertarians, uh, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who begin to argue with Stephen. Okay, so let's pause right now and let's just figure out what the heck is this synagogue of freedom? Uh, or the synagogue of the libertarians, um, as some of your translations. I know the King, King uh, James has that. Who were these people? Okay, so um, I have one note that I want to reference here just real quick. Um, this is just in my study Bible. It's just a reference note down at the bottom. Okay, so the, the freedmen, um, the synagogue of freedmen or of libertarians, they came from different Hellenistic areas. Cyrene, the chief city in Libya and North Africa, halfway between Alexander and Carthage. Uh, Alexandria, capital of Egypt, and second only to Rome in the empire. Two out of five districts in Alexandria were Jewish. Cilicia, which pause right there, that's my wife's name and that's where her parents got it from, is it is a province. Um, it is an area, it's modern day Turkey basically, um, but that's where my in-laws got her name, which is really cool. Uh, Cilicia, a Roman province in the southeast corner of Asia Minor, adjacent to Syria. Tarsus, uh, the birthplace of Saul, uh, was one of its principal towns. So uh, Tarsus is in Cilicia. A Roman province in the western part of Asia Minor uh, is just simply Asia. Ephesus, where Paul later ministered for a few years. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. 
Okay, so what you're seeing here, if you notice, these are all Hellenistic cities. We're seeing this again. We had the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews at the beginning. Well, now you have the synagogue of freedmen, um, which I did look up, um, and I want to read a, an explanation of that. Um, actually, I'll do that right now. Let me make sure I got my mark in place. Yeah, okay. So I, I wanted to know what the synagogue of freedmen was, um, and so I looked it up on gotquestions.org, which I've referenced to you guys before. It's a nice resource. Uh, it helps me um, to be able to answer some questions. I don't treat it as fact. I treat it as a guide to lead me in the right direction. I have never once found one thing that's contradictory to scripture from that site though. Uh, it's a great resource. Uh, gotquestions.org and I just did a search for synagogue of the freedmen. The synagogue of the freedmen is mentioned only once in the Bible, Acts 6, 9. The synagogue of the freedmen is called the synagogue of libertines in the King James ver version. I said libertarians, sorry, libertines. Uh, the word libertine is from the Latin and originally referred to a man who had been a slave but had been set at liberty. Some scholars believe that these persons were slaves of the Romans who had been freed, became proselytes of the Jewish religion, and had a synagogue in Jerusalem. The New Living Translation calls this group the synagogue of the freed slaves. Other scholars contend that these freedmen were not Jewish proselytes, but Jews by birth, who had been taken into captivity by the Romans and then set free and subsequently called liberty or libertine. There were many such Jews. Some have speculated that among these zealous members of the synagogue of freedom was Saul of Tarsus, who we are going to meet next week who would have been more than capable of disputing with Stephen in matters of religion. So we don't really know why they're called that. That is uh, the, the synagogue of freedmen uh, or synagogue of the freed. Um, but that it's a group of Jewish individuals that clearly have enough clout um, to be heard in the Sanhedrin um, so it's an important, influential group, but the name is really ironic, and I want to keep reading. It is ironic that the synagogue of the freedmen should call themselves that. Uh, they may have been freed from one type of slavery, but they were slaves nonetheless. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's John 8, 34. The Jews to whom he was speaking had objected to the idea they were slaves, but Jesus showed them the path to true freedom. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Despite their freedom-loving name, the synagogue of the freemen were in desperate bondage to sin. In their slavery, they plotted to lie and murder, and they rejected the truth that would have set them free. So we know that it is a group of zealous Jews that do not like in any way whatsoever the message that Stephen is giving. And so um, they persecute him. And let, let's, let's continue reading. Um, so they begin to argue with Stephen, picking up on verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. 
Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place, that's Jerusalem and the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, that's the temple he's talking about, they are talking about, and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Let me read that one more time. For we have heard him, this is Stephen, say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, he'll destroy the temple, and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked in, intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So the accusation that they present to him is the same one, more or less, that they presented to Jesus. If you recall, when Jesus is arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, one of the accusations that they accused him of is he said, if you destroy the temple and three days later, I'll raise it again. What he was talking about was his own personal body and the resurrection is the proof of that. He did exactly what he said he was gonna do. So the question is, did Jesus also specifically say that not one of these stones will stand upon another? Did Jesus say that the temple would be destroyed? Yes, he did. He did specifically say that. Did he also preach and teach about a new gospel, a new covenant made in his blood? Yeah, he absolutely did. Okay, so for those that haven't been tracking with us, when he says, change the customs of Moses handed down to us, what are the customs of Moses? What did Moses give us? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses gave us what? The Ten Commandments, the law, the Mosaic Covenant. The law, as it was mentioned here, as, as they're accusing him of going against the law, is the Old Covenant, right? The Old Testament. Testament is another word for covenant. The whole Old Testament is all about the Old Covenant. It's the old system. But in that system, all throughout, you see the prophets, you see uh, the judges foretelling of a new system that would come. As I've spoken above, about before, the law, the purpose of the law and the old covenant was to point us to Jesus and point us to the new covenant. Under the law, it's a works-based system. You have to be perfect. You have to do all of these things and when you do all of these things, then you are holy, right? And that's what the Pharisees held themselves up to be was this holy, holy group above everybody else. They were keepers of the law to the nth degree. So what Jesus, what Jesus talked about to them then in that day and to us today is that we are no longer bound by that. There's a new system and a new covenant and Jesus paid the price, that sacrifice, once for all of our sins. That is the essence of the new covenant. And when we celebrate communion, that's exactly what we're doing. Jesus specifically said, 
When you drink this cup and take this bread, you do this in remembrance of me and the new covenant given in my body and my blood. So the question I ask for you is the gospel that Stephen is preaching, is he preaching a change of the customs that Moses handed down? Yes, in a way he is. So in a way, both of these things that are being said are somewhat true. Jesus did prophesy and say that the temple would be destroyed. And in AD 70, which is right around the corner from these guys, it will be. And then the customs of Moses, Jesus didn't say that he's here to replace the law, but to fulfill the law. The New Testament and the New Covenant doesn't do away with, it builds upon and finishes the Old Testament. Just want to make sure that you guys understand that. Next week, we are going to see, see Stephen defend that accusation. You are going to see an amazing sermon. This next week is going to be a little bit of a longer one, simply because if you look, if you just flip through and see how long Acts chapter 7 is, it's pretty long. And it includes Stephen give an amazing history lesson. Because what he's charged with is he's charged with saying that you Christians are trying to get rid of the customs of Moses. And what he's going to do is he's going to give this amazing message in which he shows every Jew that is listening at the time and listening today can read this and understand that, oh my gosh, all the scripture that has been written to this day all points to Jesus. And that is what he's going to preach. It's going to be a phenomenal sermon. But at the end of it, and I am giving away the end, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. Jesus is the first who died for us. Jesus died for our faith, excuse me, for our sins and paid that price by choice. Stephen is the first in the massive book of martyrs that will die standing firm on that belief in Jesus. He's so adamant on his faith that he will not recant his faith, and they're going to kill him at the end of chapter 7. We're going to see that. We're also going to be introduced to a new character um, that will play out in Acts for the remainder of this book, and that is Saul of Tarsus. So we'll get into that next week. So why don't you guys, oh, before you bow your heads, I just want to point out one thing. I'm going to read verse 15 one more time. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. So they're bringing these accusations. Stephen is standing there right in the middle. You've got these 70 elders, uh, the same group that arrested and sent Jesus to the cross, now has Stephen there, and he's sitting there being accused by the high priest. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. He was glowing. And we're going to see that he is going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to give this amazing sermon next week. So now, why don't you bow your heads with me as we close. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this message. Thank you for um, the, the things that we can learn from this in, in looking at the issues that the early church faced and the fact that we today, Lord, still deal with issues in our churches today. But Lord, we know that we aren't perfect. Your early church wasn't perfect and no church is perfect because it's full of imperfect people. But the example that you give us in Acts chapter six, when we see this group of believers 
obviously point out and acknowledge the problem and solve it internally and prevent the church from splitting. Thank you, Lord, for that example. And thank you, Lord, for Stephen, this amazing man of God who is about to give one of the, the most fantastic sermons ever given in the history of man. And we're going to look at that next week. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Please bless everybody who's listening to this abundantly and give them a phenomenal week. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There you go. Well, I've already uh, summed up what we're going to be talking about next week. So uh, have a phenomenal week. We'll see you next week uh, when we look at Stephen and this amazing message that he gives. See you guys later.